This week on The Sport Blokes, cricket aficionado Woody V joins me to do a deep dive on the Cricket World Cup after Australia's improbable victory and India's surprising loss. Thoughts on each team, the finals, the team of the tournament, who choked, and a bunch of other things too, even a little bit of basketball. Let's go! Greetings to you wherever you may be. Obviously quite a long one this week, so I won't dwell too much at the top here, but just a couple of things to note. If you've heard the music, you'll notice that Stewie's voice didn't appear. Unfortunately, a bit of a nightmarish week for him, really. We'd both got back from our respective work trips, and then the night we were going to record last Thursday, he was understandably very worried about the horrible fires that were happening in the northern suburbs here in Perth. So luckily he, his family, and his house were okay, but there were several people who did lose homes. Indeed, his sister knew a few people who lost homes. So our thoughts really go out to everyone here in WA that had a really scary time of it lately. And indeed, around Australia and the world, anyone affected by anything horrible going on at the moment, our hearts really do go out to you all. And and I guess this is partly why we do this. Uh, sport is a nice distraction from some of the more horrible things that go on in the world. So thoughts with you guys. And then, unfortunately, I think probably the stress on top of the travel and the aircon and the all the weird temperatures, poor Stewie got sick. So he had to skip the recording on Saturday that we did with Woody, but he did send through some notes and we plan on recording Thursday this week. So we'll reflect together on the cricket again, then plenty of basketball coming up soon too, of course. A big cricket episode today, though, obviously, in the wake of the Cricket World Cup. After 48 games in 45 days, 117 50s, 41 tonnes with four 150s and even a double tonne, four fifers with the ball, 2,229 fours, 644 sixes, over 1.25 million spectators watching in person, a record, and then obviously over a billion watching on TV as well. And of course, 675 million showings of those bloody Harvey Norman and Spider-Man 2 PS5 ads. The Toyota Hilux ones I can handle because there was a bit of a narrative and they were funny. Here we are looking back at the Cricket World Cup. Now, hopefully that's right. I had to work out all those scores manually. Uh, might have missed a ton and a 50 from the New Zealand-India semi. Anyway, that gives you a very good idea of the runs that were scored. A massive thank you again at the top here to Woody V from Throwback Hoops. He was our guest, but in many ways, he was effectively serving the role of co-host in Stewie's absence. So a very big thank you to him for joining me. I tried not to treat him as a spokesperson for all Indian fans, obviously, but he is a fan and he went to a number of games over there. So hopefully you'll enjoy his insights. Yes, he's a basketball podcaster, but his cricket knowledge is even more impressive than his basketball knowledge, which is absolutely saying something. I certainly don't claim to know it all when it comes to cricket, not by any means, but I am a massive fan and I saw a lot. I tried to watch at least 10 overs from every game and I watched as much of the Aussie games as I could and the Aussie semi in the final. Unfortunately, I couldn't see the other semi because I was working. The WA time zone certainly helped. Being nocturnal certainly helped too. But for most people, when you talk about the World Cup, you're talking about soccer. But this, this is my World Cup. This is the World Cup that first captured my attention as a really young kid when we hosted it here in 1992. And I've never looked back since. So hopefully you'll enjoy this episode. It was as enjoyable a chat as it was a tournament for me. And boy, oh boy, did I enjoy the tournament. Here we go with Woody V. 
We're absolutely delighted to have our next guest on. Not only is he a friend of the show, but after appearing on episodes 92, 122, 123, and 168, he's nearly caught up to the great Alex Loughton as far as most guest appearances on the Sport Blokes are concerned. He's the co-host of the great Throwback Hoops podcast, along with another great friend of the show, Robbie C. They talk NBA, the NBL, and other basketball too. I must say they've had some really great guests on lately, including NBL legend Bob Turner and the basketball blokes, but... Not only does he really love his hoops, he's also absolutely cricket mad and even went over there for a couple of matches. So we really look forward to picking his brain, or at least I do, with the help of some of Stewie's notes. A very special sport blokes welcome to Woody V. Nate, Nate, thanks for having me, man. It's an absolute honor. And I'm in an esteemed company with Alex Larton, right? So um, really, really happy to be back on the show as always, man. Love chopping it up with you. That's it, my man. That's it. And I guess first questions first. Did you play today? Hopefully you scored some runs. Yeah, we, I did play today, Nate. Um, it was it was pretty good. It was raining here in 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 Sydney, but we just managed to get on and um, defending two twenty eight. We bowled him out for forty one, and, and it was really uh, swinging around a bit, and it was sure. a bit overcast. So we managed to get the first innings victory, and then um, rain came down uh, while we were pushing for the outright win. So a bit unlucky the other team to get the uh, you know rough end of the conditions, but um, at least we got those first innings points. Yeah, so it was good. And speaking of conditions, we'll get to that as well when we talk about the final. But let's rewind all the way back to the start. So Shui and I had the pleasure and pain in some cases of going over to India and Sri Lanka for the 2011 World Cup. Before we get any further today, we'd just love know. to know about how your trip went. How long were you there? Where did you visit? What games did you go to? It'd be really interesting to get your feeling about the whole vibe of the place. Yeah, look, I mean, India's cricket matters, you know, um, and um, I'm originally from Chennai or Madras, as, as some people might might know. It was formerly known as Madras. So it just gave me an opportunity to go visit family. Um, and uh, there was four or five games there that I was able to attend um, at, at the Chepok Stadium over there. So, yeah, no, it was really great. The experience was great. The country was, uh, you know, enjoying cricket fever at the time. So even when I wasn't physically at the games, whether it be uh, the barbershop or the, the tea shop or you know, at the, the restaurants or pubs, the, the everyone's just talking cricket. The games thrown every night, so it had a really good vibe around it in in, in India in India at the time. Right? So yeah, it was, it, was, it was great. So remind me, what portion? Obviously, it was nearly a two month tournament. So what what portion of the tournament were you over there for? And and obviously, you got back before it finished. So at that point, I would imagine the Indian locals were pretty happy with how things were going, and and obviously very confident with with how it might finish. Correct, correct. So I went about a week after the tournament had uh, started um, and I left Pakistan, South Africa. I think just after midway of the tournament, uh, through the tournament is when I left to come back to Sydney. So, um, you know, the, the the table was shaping up at the time and we had an idea of who was performing well, who wasn't. So I was there for, for a good um, portion of the tournament. But it was nice to come back uh, to Australia to watch the uh, the final stages. Yeah. So you will get there. So you you mentioned you got to a number of matches. Did you get to any India matches, or was that uh, no? Was unfortunately, that... getting the, getting tickets to India matches is really tough. And there was a huge fiasco over there, whereby third parties buy the tickets, right? Uh, they they might buy ten tickets, twenty tickets, and then sell them for five, six times the price. So what would happen is even if they sold three or four out of those ten tickets, they're still making a profit. So you'd see these stadiums, um, and I'm sure a lot of the viewers would have seen the stadiums, which were half full, right? The problem yes, was yeah. the games were sold out. Yeah, but the games were sold out because these third parties are buying up all the tickets and marking up the prices. So no tickets were available. So this actually robbed the opportunity for many people to go watch the games 
because the tickets were already in 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 theory sold out, even though the the grounds were half half uh, empty. So I think the BCCI needs to do something about this, you know, because this has not happened at other World Cups. Even in two thousand eleven, that was in Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and India, and the ICC uh, managed all the ticketing, as as you know, Nate, you were there yourself, so was I. So people were able to go. So with with this ticketing fiasco and the way things uh, played out, um, it was unfortunate that a lot of people who actually wanted to go see games weren't able to because they simply couldn't get their hands on a ticket. So getting a ticket to an India game was virtually nigh on impossible. So I was able to go to, um, you know, Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan, New Zealand, Bangladesh, uh, you know, Pakistan, South Africa, uh, and, and and games, uh, New Zealand, Afghanistan, those kind of games I was able to get tickets to the ones that were in Chennai. So um, I was fortunate because as soon as the tickets went on sale, I just sat there refreshing and refreshing and refreshing till <laughs> I could get tickets. So, um, yeah. And you, that's a really good, you, that's more than half of the participants, if I'm not mistaken. So you've got a really good cross-section of a lot of the field live, which is really good. Correct. And even when the games, as I said to you, even when I wasn't at the games, to go to a, a pub or, or a restaurant and, or even watch with my family just gave me a nice vibe and a feel regardless because the, the cup was going on in the country at the time, right? So. It's so funny you say that, Woody, because one of my strong memories from when I, I was over there, I've got a couple actually. One is a, like a tiny television. It can't have been more than maybe 20 centimetres by 20 centimetres or so. I, I know that's not the normal dimensions, but, you know, a, a tiny television in a shop front window with a whole bunch of people on the street watching. And another one was all these kids in a field playing. My God, it, was, it would, would have been impossible to score any runs because there were two batters and about, I reckon, 25 to 30 fielders. <laughs> it was just fantastic. Did you get to yeah. talk to any of the other visitors or anything like that? I know obviously you were with family and stuff, but there were there was a lot of consternation about the ticketing and games being moved from grounds and people having difficulty organizing their trips and accommodation and that sort of thing because some of the games and scheduling wasn't finalized until a really late time. Yeah, look, there wasn't much in t- in the way of tourists while I was there in Chennai anyway, right? I know they didn't manage to get out to other states and other cities. Uh, and even with Pakistan being based with a lot of their games in Chennai, there was a, a stringent po- uh, process where, whereby an interview had to be um, conducted to, for India to let Pakistani residents um, into the country. And a lot of those interviews weren't conducted. So a lot of Pakistanis weren't able to get there. So honestly, I didn't see many. You know, I saw a few New Zealanders because um, New Zealand had their base in Chennai. Um, there's a lot of Afghan who are settled in, in, in Chennai. So during the Afghanistani games, I was able to, you know, converse with them. But it was unfortunate that there wasn't a lot of tourists at the time when I, when I was there, not in Chennai anyway. So let's jump ahead to the semis. We'll talk about a whole bunch of things today, but let's let's jump ahead to the semis first. Now, the first one, India oh. and New Zealand, I unfortunately didn't really get to see any because I was away on work. I was kind of following it on Crick Info. So the Indians got a really good platform with Rohit Sharma and Shubman Gill before Kohli got 117, Aya got 105, finishing up with a total of 397, which really gave their team a, a really good total to bowl at. New Zealand were pretty good in defeat, weren't they? 327. So they fell a fair few runs short, but it was it was a pretty good effort when very few people would have given them any chance. Yeah, correct. I think Daryl Mitchell just went on with the, the great form he'd shown throughout his World Cup. He's been a revelation, you know, um, in, in, in both Test and one-day cricket over the last few years. He had support from Kane Williamson, and, 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 you know, they gave it a crack. But once you get 400 on the board... And you're playing at home in a semi-final. It's very difficult to come back from there. And as you said, you know, Shreya Sire played beautifully. 105 of 70 balls, I think it was, in that semi-final, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Virat Kohli with with a, with, a, with a brilliant 100 as well. So that was his actually his 50th 100, right? So 
that was big, right, to take over Sachin. So it was a big moment. And um, just a wonderful tournament for him. We'll talk about the players of the tournament, but 765, an average of 95, and a strike rate of 90 with a highest of 117, 300s, 650s. Just incredible. Yep. King Coley. Yeah, and look, he has he's had a bit of a, a downtime over the last few years, but he's come back in full force over the last little period, hasn't he? Uh, form is temporary, but class is permanent. And you can, you know, you've got that class, you can find your form again. And um, I think he put the team on his back. And um, I know we'll get into it later about uh, the final and whatnot, but um, him and the Indian team should be very proud of what they achieved despite f- falling short of the final hurdle. And he joined Steve Smith and himself <laughs> from 2019 as only players to have five consecutive 50-plus scores in World Cups. So, yeah, as you say, class is permanent and what a classy player he he really is. I love to hate him. My girlfriend absolutely loves him. She thinks he's fantastic. Uh, there's no doubting his skill and ability. I, I don't know if you have any other kind of thoughts or insights on that semi. I guess the Indian fans would have been pretty confident after that, especially, as you say, when they scored all those runs. Yeah, definitely. And I think... There was a big tussle for that fourth place after New Zealand started the tournament really well. They kind of fell away at the end there a little bit, didn't they? And they had to sort of win that last game against Sri Lanka to to seal their spot in the semi-final. So I think they went into that semi-final um, with a bit of with indifferent results going into that. But you know, the head-to-head record India versus New Zealand in World Cups is very favorable towards New Zealand. If you look back four years. Uh, we did lose to New. Oh, sorry. When I say we, I say India did lose to New Zealand <laughs> in that semi-final in 2019 so you know you you, you go into a, a game um versus new zealand a knockout game you've always got to be wary of them and as you know nate you know they're always punching above their weight and india really needed to step up and um uh, some of their senior players as you as you mentioned put the team on their back there so really good good victory and obviously um anything short of a grand final result would have been a underachievement um in the opinion of myself and, and the indian public so uh, it's good we got that win We'll jump ahead to the other semi, Australia and South Africa. Now, I was lucky enough to watch far more of it than I thought I was going to. I think I was on a work trip in Malaysia and I think I got back to the hotel. The score was four for 44 with a rain delay. I think it was it was even worse than that at one stage, though, wasn't it? It must have been four for nearly 20-odd at one point, I think. So the South Africans had a horrible start. We managed to find a pub. Initially, I did my research. There was a place called the Sticky Wicket in Malaysia, but it was about a 45-minute drive away. We found a place uh, called Gravy Baby, which was closer, and I give them a shout-out because we had a great night there, and and uh, with the exchange rate, we enjoyed <laughs> we enjoyed plenty of food and beverages for a relatively small amount. But, yeah, so I think we, we must have got there maybe around the halfway point of the first inning. So I probably saw... About 75 of the 100 innings of that one. The South Africans, they did steer the ship, didn't they? So after that horrible start that I mentioned, Klaassen and Miller really combined quite well. Klaassen just short of a half ton. Miller had 101. They ended up with 212. Clearly didn't look like enough. Mitch Stark, 3 for 34. Josh Hazelwood, 2 for 12. Magnificent. Paddy Cummins, 3 for 51. Travis Head with a player of the match performance, two for 21 before his knock of 62 as well. But the Aussies really did have to eke it out, didn't they? And although it was a, a low score, it was turning and it was it was a bit of a minefield at times, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, You did mention there were four down for 20-odd South Africa and, and those two, Aiden Mark, uh, sorry, Heidrich Klaassen and David Miller had great tournaments, right? So if it wasn't for that rescue mission from those two and, the, and that great 100 from David Miller, it could have been a lot worse. But as you said, the, the ball did turn. 
uh, appreciably. And, and you know, Keshav Maraj and um, Tabarez, uh, Shamsi, they, they were all beautifully in that second innings and kept them in it. I think South Africa, Temba Bhuvuma did leave Kesh Maraj a little bit late to bring him into the attack. That's one criticism I had. You know, because you don't have a lot of runs to play with. You want to bring your spinner into the game a little bit earlier. And I think he was brought on as the last bowler. I think he might have got one for 20-odd off 10 overs from memory. Yeah, you're spot on there, man. For an economy of 2.4, one for 24 off his 10. So he was very tight. Very tight indeed. And Shamsi was two for 42 off off his 10 as well. So between them... Only about three and over and three wickets. So I thought Shamsi probably looked a little bit more dangerous, even though he's conceded more runs. But yeah, between the two of them, they bowled superbly well. And Markram chipped in quite well too, didn't he? Yeah, he bowled beautifully. And I think the the, the wicket was read well by Temba Babuma. I just thought maybe a little bit earlier when he st- stuck with um, you know Rabada, he could have probably brought in um, um, Kesh Miraj a little bit earlier because obviously they played him out, played out his 10 overs, one for 24. And they weren't looking to sort of score too much of him just get through his overs. So if you bring bring a, a bowler like that into the attack a little bit earlier, it could have paid dividends. But, you know, you, there's always uh, hindsight. But when you look back at South Africa's World Cup um, and for them to make it to the semifinals and actually push Australia till the, the very end, you know, they've kind of got rid of that choker tag, I feel. Um, and you've got to give some credit to Pat Cummins. Not, on, not for the first time in this World Cup has he stepped up with the bat when the team needed him and and put the team on his shoulders and taken responsibility. So I think at the very end, there was a, a partnership there between Starkey and, and, and Cummins um, to take the team home from, I think it was seven for 190 odd when Inglis got out, um, something along those lines. Um, and, you know, South Africa, look, three wickets. We, they still need, you know, a good um, 30 odd runs. It could have been tricky there. So I think those two um, steered the ship home nicely, right? And great tournament for both of them with ball and bat, really. I mean, the stats might not have always been there, but as you say, situationally, Stark and Camo, Camo in particular, obviously there was the Maxwell knock, really good with the bat, probably relied on them too often, to be honest. The middle order was probably Australia's weak point at times. I know Mitch Marsh was out for a duck. I, I kind of feel like had that ball been maybe one centimetre to the left or right, it wouldn't have been caught. He absolutely whacked that one. And who knows, maybe it was an easier chase if, I mean, it was a great, a really good catch by Van der Dusen to to remove him. So Van der Dusen, yep, for sure. I remember, yeah. Yeah, really good skill from both teams, I think. And and like probably more of a game for the purists. I, I was watching with a mate who's not a massive cricket fan. Like he has fond memories of Michael Bevan's four against the West Indies, for example. He probably watches more footy and basketball and other sports these days, but Full credit to him. He, he it was a long day for us, as I said on our work trip. But he he hung in with me till the end, and it was I think it was worth it when we had the win. But geez, as you say, if they'd scored even just thirty or forty more runs, I think it could have been a really really tricky tricky chase. It was already a very tricky chase, wasn't it? So yeah, we'll come back to the choking thing. That is a bit of a, a point gotcha. of topic across the the tournament more broadly, not just South Africa. So I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts beyond what you've mentioned already. It was, it was funny uh, before we jump to the final. So when when I got home, I arrived in the wee hours of Saturday morning and a young Pakistani bloke picked me up, the taxi driver. And, you know, I, I always kind of, I, I, he he volunteered that he was from Pakistan because I think we were talking about, oh, we'll talk about my trip and how I worked in education and he went to a uni here. Anyway, he said he was studying for Pakistan. I said, look, I don't want to make any assumptions are you a cricket fan? And it was so funny. Like the rest of the trip, we just chatted the whole way home. And and he, I think he actually forgot to charge me. 
<laughs> I think he wished that it was a longer trip and we could have uh, driven for longer <laughs> and talked for longer. So I have really good memories of that semi-final and, and uh, uh, shout out to my mate. We don't mention names of the innocent uh, lest they wish to be mentioned, but I know he listens. Shout out to, to him. It was a great night and a great semi-final. Let's jump ahead to the final now. So I guess before we even talk about the toss, which I think was really Do we important. have to? <laughs> yes. Well, well, let's. Uh, this is what I wanted to gauge. Okay. How confident were you going into the final? I, I think I was more. This is probably more optimistic I've been about our team in the subcontinent than some other tours. I, I kind of said 70 30 India. I thought we had a legit maybe 30% chance. I don't know how you felt. No, I knew we were going to lose, man. I had no confidence, right? I knew that 10 wins in a row, we needed a loss along the way there somewhere to like, you know, shake us up a little bit. And I was just telling everyone I knew, um, Australia's real. I have a really bad feeling Australia's going to win this. And my parents had a watch party at their house and we rocked up and all my uncles and aunties were all there, uh, you know, decked out in our Indian attire and gear with the flag and everything. And they all said, what do you think? Do we have a chance? And I'm like, I'm telling you guys, Australia's going to win. Everyone is like booing me. I'm like, look, <laughs> That's not that's not what I want. This is just an opinion you asked for, and this is yeah. my opinion. I just have a feeling Australia's peaking at the right time. They went into some tough situations. I'm sure we will we'll touch on on some of the games that Australia played, um, and it looked like things were were not going too well, and they ended up um, pulling a rabbit out of the hat to win those games. So when you actually are able to win those tough games, it 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 builds resilience in the squad, right? And it prepares you for big games like a final. India pretty much cruised through 10 games and weren't really challenged too much to, at all along the way. So this is the reasons behind my thinking that Australia was in a good position to win that win that final. Yeah. And I agree with you 100%. And that's probably why I was a little bit more confident than many, because obviously there's that thing, as you say, the more you win the closer you are to that next loss. And it will come eventually. And and you're absolutely right. So here's the tale of the tape. They won that first match against us by six wickets. Now, we that was a really interesting match that did swing back and forth. Obviously, I think, weren't there three blokes with a duck at the beginning or something? We had an amazing start. But in the end, they did win pretty Correct. comfortably. Uh, beat Afghanistan by eight wickets. Beat Pakistan by seven. Beat Bangladesh by seven as well. Wickets, that is. Beat New Zealand by four wickets, beat England by 100 runs. A little bit of a scare there, but not really that much of a scare. Probably similar to the Australian one. A tiny scare, but they steadied the ship. Beat Sri Lanka by a whopping 302, then South Africa by 243. So back-to-back wins have combined nearly 550 runs. Beat Netherlands by 160, and then beat New Zealand in the semi by 70. So you're right. They really they really weren't tested very well at all. And then on the flip no, side of that, you no. think about Australia, obviously backs against the wall immediately having lost the first two. Then obviously Travis Head was away for the first five matches, came back and had a really important knock against New Zealand. Mitch Marsh went away to mourn the death of his grandpa, said he was going to come back and help Australia win the World Cup, which is exactly what he did in the end. He had a great knock against Correct. Bangladesh, Correct. had a 170 odd. That was a blistering knock. That was fantastic to watch. Nearly as good as the Maxwell knock, obviously. Nothing tops the Maxwell knock. And what a match that was. Seven for 91 or whatever it was. We'll come back to that one as well. But you're absolutely right. I'm sure. The Aussies just built that resilience. The tournament built really nicely. And and you mentioned New Zealand as well. I think you're absolutely right there too. The pacing of the tournaments. So India peaked basically in the lead up to the semi-final. New Zealand peaked maybe halfway through the tournament and Australia peaked at the right time, didn't they? Right at the end. So let's let's go right back to the beginning. Obviously, the Aussies won the toss. It was an interesting pitch. 
uh, won the toss and bowled, which was an incredibly gutsy decision, turned out to be a magnificent one in the end, an absolute masterstroke. I, like most people, I think it's it's not unreasonable to say, thought the only reason the Aussies were going to win was if they scored 350 to 400 and then bowled really well in the night innings. But sure enough, no, sent India in, only scored 240. What do you make of the pitch and and the the decision to bowl first? Look, it's funny. I was actually walking over to my parents' house and listening to the radio and Jonathan Agnew, Harsha Bogle, everyone else was on the radio saying, this is nuts. What is what is Pat Cummins doing, deciding to bowl first year? You know, he's basically given the advantage away to, to the Indians, right? Um, and then Rohit Sharma even said at the toss, look, we would have batted first anyway. Um, but Pat Cummins knew what he was doing. He made the right call. I mean, we can talk about his leadership throughout the tournament. He's been maligned as a leader in the past, but I thought he led um, the team wonderfully well during the tournament and, and the final he made the right decision at the toss um, and it, it proved to be a masterstroke right and I think preparing the pitch in a way that would potentially advantage India actually ended up backfiring on them. So did they overthink that should they have just had a, a belter of a pitch or was it as simple as them just not playing well that one game that mattered as well? Yeah look I mean once the pitch is you know, being played and, and ready for the game, you know, you've just got to play the hand that you're dealt. I felt in that bad in- innings, um, you know, India lost wickets at crucial times when partnerships were starting to build. Kohli got out, or KL Rahul got out. I still think that, you know, they get 270, 280 on that pitch. Um, even though Australia did win with seven overs to spare, it's, it's run pressure, right? I just think they had an off day. And anyone who I talked to leading up to that final uh, in the last few rounds, like, we need to lose a game. <laughs> Any Indian I spoke to was saying, please, let's just lose one game. So we don't, as you said, um, the more wins you get, you're, you're, one, you're one, one closer to your first loss, right? So um, I think it was just a situation of uh, Australia winning the toss and bowled absolutely beautifully that day. I mean, the way Cummins managed his bowlers, Hazelwood copped a little bit of a, a battering at the start from uh, Rohit Sharma, but he came back beautifully to take two for 60. And the guys just stuck together. And Pat Cummins just marshaled his troops beautifully. Australia just came out to play, man. And, you know, the Australians have got experiences playing in these big games, right? You know, they they like the, the moment. They like the big occasion. Many of these, uh, I think four or five of the members of this team had previously played in a World Cup final uh, you know, back in Australia in 2015. So this kind of situation wasn't new to them. They've got a lot of veterans in that squad who are, um, you know, capable to step up when when the bright lights are shining. And, and that's exactly what happened. You've given me so much to work with there. So I think from memory, 07 is the only tournament where teams had a clean sheet and won every single match, including the final. I might be wrong, right. but I think, yeah, okay. So there you go. So so you're right. And, and that's kind of the... That's the, the West Indies. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, we were there. That was the one we spent most of the time. We were there for two months. That was some of the best six months of my life. But um, yeah, so so you're right. It, it's it's very hard to go through an entire tournament undefeated in, in cricket and particularly ODIs. And I kind of had a similar belief. And, and as I said earlier, I think, I think that's partly why I gave the Aussies maybe a higher chance because they were just Oh, they were just due. They were just due for one. But I'll tell you what, they started so well. So Rohit Sharma was in blistering form. Went at a strike rate of 150. He was. We were very lucky to get, get him when we did. Three sixes, four fours for a 47 off 31. Travis Head caught him. Maxwell bowled. Maxwell chimed in really well, actually. He was one for 35 off six. Nearly an economy of six, but... 
he, he did bowl quite well. He, he gets through his overs quickly, a bit like Jadeja. So one of those important off-spin bowlers. Coley, as you said, he had a knock as well, 54 of 63. And, and Rahul as well, 66 off 107. But I, I guess the obvious question is, did they put the foot down on the pedal a little bit too late? They, they do back quite deep. And, okay, they, their bowlers didn't go spectacularly well in the end, but they're certainly capable. Did did they put the foot down a little bit too late or do you think they placed their innings well and they just needed to bowl to that 240? No, I think they, they needed to go on with it. I, I don't know about the way they paced it, but one of those guys, KL Rahul and Virat Kohli, you know, after getting a start, one of them needs to go on and get a big 100 there, right? You know, if you're going to play at that rate, knock it around, not get a boundary for many, many overs, you need to be there in the 48th, 49th, 50th over, right? And, you know, Stark obviously coming on, getting that bit of reverse swing, Cummins in the middle of the best spell of his tournament, you know, were able to get Virat and 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 and, and KL Rahul when, when they were set. And then a new on that pitch, a new batsman comes in, it's not easy to score straight away. You know, you've got to, you, you know, take some time to get accustomed to the pitch. Ravi Jadeja and Surya Yadav really struggled. Um, and then when you go in with the four bunnies, Shami, Bumra, Yadav, and Siraj, 8, 9, 10, 11, it doesn't leave you much, right? That's that's the one reason they were playing Shardul Thakur in, uh, earlier in the tournament, to to give them that depth at number at number eight. Obviously, bringing in Shami was a masterstroke because he had such a fantastic tournament. But, you know, that's the trade-off you have when, you, when, you're, when you're batting with four number 11s, basically. And I've got to say, you, you said Rohit Sharma did play well, right? He just did a six and he just did a four on consecutive balls of Glenn of Glenn Maxwell. And I said to my I said to my parents, I said, man, he just needs to knock a couple of singles now and get to his 50 and reset. But instead, he went for it. And what what a great catch it was from from Travis said. I can't really argue with him because he stuck to his principles. This whole tournament, Rohit Sharma's like, I'm just gonna go for it from the start and get my team off to a good start. That's the way I'm gonna play. And he stuck to his convictions, convictions throughout the tournament. So I can't be too uh, you know, critical of him. But in that situation, you know, you've just you know, you've just hit a six and a four, you've got 10 runs off the over, you're on 47, just knock it around, get to 50. Reset, your team needs you to go on and make a big one in this tournament. So in this tournament final. So um that was actually a real big turning point. That catch was the turning point of the match, in my opinion, because um it really set the tone, right? Yeah, I think with the benefit of hindsight, you're probably right, actually, although it was quite early in the match, but it it really was a key moment. I agree with you as well. I think the the power plays were Super important in this tournament. And I think getting off to good starts was quite quite important as well. So I agree. I think the intent was there. And I felt similar about Mitch Marsh. I know Stewie and I disagreed a little bit about Marsh coming in in our innings. But I, I my opinion was you try and knock off 100 in the first 15 and then just kind of steer the ship through from there in the final 35. And and obviously, Marshy uh, did have a, a, a start, 15 off 15, uh, hit a, a lovely six as well. But yeah, it just, just didn't kind of come off for him in the end. But I agree. I think that intent's really important because if you shut up shop too much, you, you're just handing the momentum to the other team. And and if they're bowling well, they're, they're just going to run with it, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. And like someone like Glenn Maxwell, he, he does a solid job, but he's not going to bowl these wicket-taking deliveries. He's just going to you know plug away and hope that the batsman makes a mistake. I mean, and that's what 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 happened in this scenario. So, as I said, I can't be too critical of him, but if I'm going to look back, um, I think we needed more from Rohit after getting the team off to such a good start. And we talked about Cummins as well. Here's here's an example of how our notes differ. So, Stewie sent through a few bits and pieces that I've tried to synthesize into my notes a little bit. 
I wrote, Camo ringing in the changes, used about eight different bowlers across about 11 overs. Stewie with the same kind of uh, thought, and this is a question for you. Do you think Pat Cummins could have captained the game any better? 22 bowling changes. India scored just four boundaries after the first 10 overs. The joint lowest in any men's ODI innings since 2005. A few other stats there, I guess. Kohli and Kale Rahul, 80 in the first 10 overs together, but then 74 in the next 20. Only two boundaries between the 11th and 40th overs. Kale Rahul, Stewie wrote, to use up 107 deliveries and to go at a run rate of just 61, his second lowest strike rate of the tournament behind the 8 off 17 he made against South Africa. And he came in at 3 for 227 in that match. Uh, and Coley flying. So, yeah, I think Stewie probably maybe thought like I did that the the pacing was a little bit off. And it certainly seems that that you agreed with that as well. I think the other key thing was the fielding, wasn't it? So I remember at the start of the tournament, the Aussies were shit outs. I think I think it was a, a World Cup record, six drop catches in the first or second game. I can't remember if it was uh, you guys or or the, the second game we played. But it was just against South Africa, but just woeful in the field. And then a complete contrast by the end. I think, as you said, that catch was a turning point in the match. They do say catches win matches for a reason. The Aussies saved so many runs in the field. A number of blokes, Manus and David Warner in particular, but everyone fielded superbly well. That catch from Travis Head. I mean, my God, one of the great World Cup catches of all time prior to one of the great World Cup knocks of all time. And we'll talk about that as well. But... The Aussie fielding was super, super important in the final, wasn't it? Definitely. And I think you mentioned that first two games they struggled. Their, their catching percentage was around 50%. The stats were all over, um, you know, star sports in India. <laughs> but uh, the Aussies catching percentage over those first two games. But they really turned it around. And when their fielding improved, so did the team's performances. And that just kept getting better and better. And it culminated at the final um, and so you're, you're completely right. The, the fielding played a huge part in that. And to answer Stewie's question, I think it's one of the best pieces of captaincy in a match that I've seen in a long time, right? Uh, and sometimes you say in, in a captain, you know, doesn't have huge role, role to play, um, you know, but this game, you could really notice Pat Cummins. He led by example. He was very astute in his tactical decision-making and he didn't let the momentum um, build at all. He was constantly throwing different bowling changes at the Indian batsmen so they couldn't settle against one bowler. And as I mentioned earlier, on a pitch like that, um, ringing those changes effectively um, would end up paying dividends. And um, uh, a lot of respect has to go to the way Pat Cummins uh, marshaled his troops in that final. So, yeah. Do you agree that Rowett would have actually set themselves into bat anyway? There's a lot of talk about the pitch and, and how important the pitch was. Do you believe him when he said they would have gone into bat anyway? Yes, I, I do. I do. I know there's been a lot of talk that maybe he just said that, right, at the toss. But uh, I do believe that he would have batted first. And what's interesting, five of the past seven World Cup finals, including the last three, have been won by the side batting second. So maybe that was in the Aussies' mind. Another thing that a lot of people were talking about was the Jew. So they did their due diligence, D-E-W, as it were. I can't claim that one. I read that one. That's a great pun. I think, I, where did I read that? On Crick Info, I think it was. So Marnus didn't even know he was playing until about 10 o'clock the night before. He yeah, was uh, involved in the pitch inspection, the ground inspection, where they had a look at the due and the conditions. And they decided that it was better to have him as, I guess, someone who could play more of a test match innings and, and maybe see off the spinners than Stoinis. Turned out to be a masterstroke, didn't it? I, I thought at times 
Stoinis did look a bit shaky with the bat. So, yeah, that, that turned out to be the right call by the looks, didn't it? Definitely. And I think Manus doesn't get a lot of credit for the way he played during this World Cup. He played a role beautifully for that for the team, even better than Steve Smith throughout the tournament. I feel Manus's contributions were, and he assessed the situation really well. You mentioned Mitchell Marsh giving that quick wire 15, and then Stephen Smith fell soon after. He knew that Travis had just been man of the match in the semifinal. He was in a good vein of form, and he knew that he had a role to play in a partnership with, with Travis Head, and he played that role to perfection. I mean, it's a throwback uh, ODI innings, 58 of 110 balls, right? In a run chase of around 240. He, he would have seen an innings like that in the 90s, Nathan. So um, I think the way he, he assessed the situation and played the conditions um, was, was a lot of kudos must go to him. Yeah. And hopefully and yes, it's definitely the right call to pick him. Hopefully it's a, a very long career ahead of him, but he's already had one of the most interesting, fascinating careers in the history of cricket. When you think about the concussion sub for Steve Smith in those ashes where he came in and basically cemented his place in the side from that point onwards. When you think about the Willie won't he wasn't in the original World Cup squad, was always kind of on the outers, maybe won't play, maybe will play, ended up playing... Uh, a really crucial knock in the final, as you say. And then even the things like the the toasty in the pocket and the the uh, enthusiasm and the the DRS, uh, you know. All, he's just such a, a fascinating... He's one of my favourite players. I love watching him play. And just such a great character and, and just so good for the game. And look, testament to him. You know, you, you never know when your number is going to be called, but you need to be mentally prepared for that opportunity, whether it be a concussion substitution, an injury, right? You need to be prepared, right? And and minus whenever an opportunity is presented itself, he's taken it. So that's testament to him, as I said. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I think it was Adam Collins that was saying, you know, when when they did their due diligence to ram that joke home, he at that point thought, okay, how can I potentially make a mark on this innings and this match? as a 12th man subfielder, you know. So great mentality. And yeah, I'm really stoked that he got to play uh, such a crucial role in the final. So that was the first innings. That was India's innings with the bat. And boy, let me tell you, my neighbours around the place definitely knew every time a wicket fell uh, because I was very loudly celebrating. (laughs) It probably comes as no surprise my loudest celebrations were the Sharma and Kohli wickets respectively. But uh, the other thing actually I did want to mention, Woods, is how well the Aussies bowled to Sky, Surakuma Yadav. Like they really contained him really well, didn't they? And, And had he been able to get off the leash, so he was 18 off 28, had he been able to get off the leash, they might have scored that extra 30-odd that would have potentially changed the entire match. Yeah, look, Surya Kumar Yadav is someone who hasn't actually found the tempo of one-day cricket. If you look at his stats, 37 games, um, average of 25.7, 450, strike rate of over 100, sure. But he just hasn't got the tempo of, of, of 50 over cricket. And I just thought Ishan Kishan sitting there in the, in the wings, recently scored a double 100 in a one-day international, would have been a better bet than actually um, persisting with Surya throughout that tournament. So Australia did bowl well, but at the same point, I think we should know by now that let's leave Surya to the the 20 over format. Um, I don't think we'll see him in, in Indian colours playing 50 over cricket ever again. Well, that's fair enough too. And and there's plenty, there's no shortage of guys waiting in the wings behind him. The Aussies Correct. start 
The Aussie start was inauspicious, wasn't it? So one for 16 when Davey Warner fell for seven, two for 41 when Mitch Marsh fell. As I said, he had a 15 off 15. He started really well, went hard. And, and I agree with that decision. I thought we needed to go hard. But once that wicket did fall, things got a bit funny. Now, Steve Smith didn't review it three for 47. I don't, I don't know what you make of that one. That was a major surprise, wasn't it? I think Travis had told him, look, that's out. I don't think you should review it, right? And and that's why he didn't. But yeah, hit him outside the line. First thing I said to everyone that was watching with me at my parents' house is like, he should review that. That's hit him outside. He's puzzling to me when you've got the reviews. If there's even a shadow of a doubt, um, you should take it. So I was really surprised there. You're right. From memory, though, we did square the ledger because there was one where we had an umpire's call. I can't remember who it was. Was it Trev or was it Manus? Uh, where where it was that was a very line ball. Had the umpire's call gone the other way, he would have fallen, and maybe the whole tournament would have finished. What what do you make of DRS? Do you? I, I still not convinced it gets it right all the time. I still think it's a bit funny. Look, I mean, there's going to be a, a small margin where it, it it could be this or that, but it's still definitely going to make the game better because the majority of the, I mean almost all the decisions that are made are, are correct with the use of DRS. There might be a few that, you know, are line ball decisions, but definitely better than the days before DRS. So I think it's definitely good for the game. Now, I guess the fall of the wickets really does tell the tale, doesn't it? So it went from three for 47 when Steve Smith went to four for 239 when Travis Head went just at the end, which was really fitting, I think, to give Glenn Maxwell the winning runs, two off one, the quickest two in World Cup history, apparently. Uh, wonderful random stat there from Stewie. I think he might have got that one from Rick Finlay. But, uh, yeah, aside from nearly running himself out on 99 as he tried to get his 100, which was a bit funny, one of the just greatest one-day knocks of all time, given the context, 137 off 120. As I said, he missed the first five matches of the tournament. He had a broken hand, just an astonishing knock from a guy who could be a future captain of Australian cricket, hey? I totally agree with that captaincy credentials you mentioned there. Um, but I think, uh, you know, credit must go to Andrew McDonald, George Bailey, uh, you know, the selectors for, for seeing that Travis Head was injured, but to include him in the squad. I mean, they could have easily uh, picked a, another spinner when Ashton Agar went down, but they stuck with Travis Head knowing that he'd be right for the back end of the tournament and that in a big game, big games that he would be vital to the team's success. And and are we even surprised anymore with Travis Head being able to do these kind of things? You know, he man of the match in the, uh, you know, World Test Championship, you know, man of the match in the semi-final. It's the greatest innings in, in World Cup history, um, you know, against, uh, you know, 100,000 adoring Indian fans um, to take your team home to a title. And these are the kind of things that, you know, he'll look back on when he's finished playing fondly and, and be able to tell his kids, his grandkids about uh, what he did that day. So, um, fantastic. And his knock, he joins Viv Richards, 138, not in 79. Punter, 140, not in 2003. Gilly, 149 against Sri Lanka in the dark in the West Indies, which I had the pleasure of seeing live. And then a couple of the ladies as well. Nat Siva Brunt, 148, not in 2022. And Alyssa Healy, 170. Uh, that was uh, she was out in that one in this year, uh, 2022 as well. So, yeah, joins a, a list of really phenomenal knocks in the final there. And and listen to the other players that have won player of the match in the Blokes World Cup finals. 
over the years. 75, Clive Lloyd. 79, Viv Richards. 83, Amanath. You might need to help me with that one. That's the only name on the list I don't really know much. Mohinder Amanath, yes. And that was with the ball, surprisingly. Um, he's a batsman who bowled a little bit, and uh, Kapil Dev brought him on, and uh, he took three crucial wickets in, in one of the biggest upsets in, in World Cup history, actually. that that The year I was born, a few days after I was born, India actually won that World Cup in 83. So uh, while we talk about India losing, uh, let's look back fondly on a memory <laughs> uh, that gives me a lot of happiness, right? So, yeah. <laughs> and that was the tournament where they'd already beaten the Windies in the pool rounds as well. So, correct. yeah, some, some really big yeah, upsets correct. there. 87, Booney. 92, Wasm. I mean, it really is a who's who. 96, Aravinda De Silva, when they beat us. Funnily enough, 96, there was a lot of school of thought that Mark Taylor might have got in the ears of Camo and, and a couple of the Aussie blokes and the coaching staff saying, look, in 96, Warney really struggled to grip it with the Jew. And we might want to consider that and we might want to bowl first as a result. So there's a school of thought that uh, that might have played a part. Speaking of Warney, he was man of the uh, match in the final or player of the match in 99. 03 punter, 07 gilly, 2011 MS Dhoni. Uh, as you mentioned, speaking of the fond victories that you look back on, that one you actually got to watch and enjoy. 2015, Jimmy Faulkner, that's a weird uh, a career, isn't it? He really was a flash in the pan, was arguably Australia's most important short form player along with Aaron Fitch for a couple of years there, I think, but uh, almost disappeared as quickly as he came. And then 2019, Ben Stokes before Travis Head. So yeah, what a list, a, a real who's who that he joins there. And the Alan Border medal, you can pretty much give it to him now, as you've agreed, probably a future captain and well, the sky's the limit for him, isn't it really? Yeah, totally. Um, and I, I think he's showing maturity now in years gone past. He wasn't able to convert those great starts at first class level into into big hundreds. But obviously, with time and experience, he's now matured and he's taken his game to, to the next level. So, yes, above and beyond for Travis Head, um, for sure. And how weird was it seeing such a big stadium where the home fans outnumber the neutrals and the Aussie fans probably got? 10,000 to one, like to, to see such a large stadium, if not more, to see such a large stadium so quiet at times was, it was almost haunting, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, this is a stadium named after the Prime Minister Modi. Modi was there, right? Um, India showcased um, all these aeroplanes flying, you know, before the game and had a ceremony and things like that. So it was not just about the cricket. This is India saying to the world, this is the new India, you know, this is us the modern India, and we're here. And so winning this game was more than just a cricket match to the people of, of my country. It was about a statement, you know? And I think when you have that weight of expectation on your shoulders, it can be a lot for the players, right? As, as you mentioned, you know, a sea of blue um, and all those aforementioned points that I raised, um, it, it puts a lot of pressure on you. And I think that also played a little bit of a part in India falling at that final hurdle. And it was funny, Modi's involvement kind of ruined the celebrations a bit, didn't they? Pat was uh, on the podium with <laughs> yes. the trophy and the fireworks going off and Modi's shaking all of the Aussies' hands. He's just kind of standing there. That was quite funny. There was a bit of t uh, controversy right. as well with Stoinis not shaking the little master's hand. Yeah, that was that was always interesting as well to get some of the the, the yeah how people handled the celebrations. The Indians walked off the field. They they went there for the celebrations. I don't know how you feel about that. Obviously, it was an absolutely gutting defeat. Yeah, look, I mean, the right thing to do is shake the hand at the end of the game and, and uh, you know, move on. I, 
I don't have a problem with them not being around for the celebrations. You know, obviously it did hurt them. But as long as they're able to, you know, shake the hands and that, you know, Indian players and the Australian players have really good relationships through the IPL. So, we, you know, after the game is over and whatnot, um, I, you know, I'm sure Australia and India would have caught up together for a catch up in the dressing room or the day after. I think relations are very good there. So I don't I don't look into that too much. Yeah, no, I agree. I think as long as they're shaking hands and showing some level of respect, they don't need to see the uh, the gory details of the celebration as far as they're concerned. I guess my last question for you as far as the match itself was concerned, Siraj's involvement with the ball, do you, do you think that the yeah. captaincy was right from Rowett as far as his ringing of the changes? I actually thought the spinners, no. they didn't look as dangerous as they have previously. And, and maybe, I dare say, the spinners may be disappointed a little. Look, Mohamed Shami has been brilliant throughout the tournament, right? And he's been doing that coming onto ball at first change, right? And it's been Siraj that has been taking the new ball. And I don't think they needed to change that in the in the in the final because Shami likes the ball when it's maybe eight, ten overs old. His seam position is absolutely impeccable. Um, and I just felt that sure he did nip out Warner early and and whatnot, but he he's been so effective coming on in that first change role. Um, and we should have just stuck to that blueprint. Yeah? And uh, Siraj was al- almost made redundant um, a- as we, we left him for later. So I think that was a tactical error on, on Rohit Sharma's part by not giving Siraj the new ball. So I guess now we'll talk about the quality and the aftermath of the tournament. Before we kind of talk about India and and some of the other things, I, I believe you had some brief takeaways on each team. Any kind of notes or thoughts or things that that kind of stuck out to you for for it doesn't have to be each team I, I guess uh this was your little homework exercise you can you can uh I'm sure yeah. it'll be an a plus regardless of what you turn in let's do that then okay maybe we'll maybe we can start in alphabetical order and start with Afghanistan a little bit right perfect I mean these guys have to be really really proud of what they've achieved you know they've got a lack of resources you know their, their country's going through turmoil at the moment and for these guys to turn up and play the way they have has just been incredible. And, you know, they were in with a, a shot to make that semi-final till till the very end of the tournament. You know, ended up on eight points, just one one game short of New Zealand on, on 10 um, and took some great scalps along the way. So I think the future is bright for Afghanistan cricket. And, uh, um, I mean, you would have seen them play, Nate. And I, I actually was there when Afghanistan beat Pakistan in Chennai, which was just an amazing moment. Yeah, your, your thoughts there on, on their performance. Oh, it's reminiscent of Sri Lanka prior to 96 in some ways, isn't it? Their rise over the last couple of years and and obviously things like the IPL and the Big Bash with Khan playing and, and they've had more exposure to really good coaching and playing against really good competition and other players, even outside of the international sphere, I think is really important as well. But yeah, I, I've, I've uh, seen them live a couple of times over the years and if, if it hadn't been Australia... I would have been rooting for them in that Glenn Maxwell game, which there's no other way to describe it than as the Glenn Maxwell game. But yeah, just really, really impressive and all yes. all the reason to believe that they'll just keep improving. And I guess one of the things Julie and I talked about the last time we recorded was how Zimbabwe and the Windies weren't even there, but Afghanistan and the Netherlands clearly had punched their ticket for a reason and they really performed really well and they justified their spot in the tournament, didn't they? Yeah, totally. And look, they've got that beautiful four-pronged spin attack with Majib, Mohamed Nabi, Rashid Khan, Nur Ahmed, right? So these 
that kind of attack suits the conditions the World Cup was played in. But the knock on them in the past is their batsmen weren't able to, you know, go on with it and then put up decent enough scores for the for the bowlers to to bowl at. So, but you know, the likes of Gerbaz and Ibrahim, uh, Zadran, they've got they've got um the nucleus of some really good batsmen now who can build innings. So I think um they can work on their fielding a little bit, but I think every, every other department is pretty good there with, with Afghanistan. And um, I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, some of the bigger countries giving them some opportunities to tour and 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 play. So they're only going to get better with more exposure against the better sides. And you're right about all their spinners. They, they all are quite different as well. So they offer a lot of variety. It's not like similar guys just bowling with different names. So, yeah, and obviously... In the subcontinent, they perform better than maybe on some other pitches, had it been here, for example. But there's no doubt that they they really are improving and and will look to continue to do so. Maybe let's move on to Bangladesh, shall we? Thought we'd do Australia and India at the end, right? We've already spoken <laughs> about it yeah, a bit, fair, so let's just move yeah. on to Bang- Bangladesh. Um, <laughs> Bangladesh, you know, the problem I have with them is they've been turning up for the last 20, 30 years in big tournaments and not really seen I've not really seen an improvement and you know the likes of Shakib and Mushfakir and Mamadullah keep turning up but the progression isn't there and they were the disappointment for me because they had a really good um you know super league one day super league leading in the last four years leading up to this world cup and you thought that playing in these kind of conditions Bangladesh would be more of a force than they were um turmoil in the team before um arguments with Tami Mikbal you know pulling out of the final hour Mahmoudullah was batting at number eight and not bowling. This guy is a World Cup legend, man. He's he, Every time World Cups uh, come around, he turns up and he makes big scores. And finally, when they realized, oh, yeah, we need to bat him up the order, he ended up returning, you know, um, average of 54 with 150, you know. Um, he was their best batsman. But they, they batted him at eight and things like that. So I think the... The think tank in Bangladesh really need to do a reset now and um, look at, um, you know, pushing that that youth movement and look beyond some of those guys that I just mentioned. And, uh, you know, a real sour note on the on the tournament with Shakib al-Hassan, um, obviously um, appealing for the for the timed out decision on Angelo Matthews, um, which didn't really put them in a good light at all, did it? Yeah, no, well, that's what I was going to bring up next. And you mentioned Iqbal. Obviously, they missed his batting. That was a pretty big out for them. Yeah, that's that's the prevailing thought, isn't it? Is the the first timed out in international history, wasn't it? And Shakib obviously pulled out those stumps and he's known for his hissy fits. So he's not the most popular man in world cricket. It, it's a real shame that that's kind of the resounding memory of their tournament, but probably also sums up their tournament because it was very disappointing. Yep, you're right. And I think when you're setting the example for young kids as a captain, Shakib is someone who's idolized by the young kids in Bangladesh. That kind of thing is is not acceptable. And I think the umpires have a little bit of, of blame here to do as well to take some uh, initiative there and say, look, you know, he was ready to face up. He was just fixing his helmet. We're not going to accept that appeal. But anyway, Bangladesh need to look forward now. They've got the Champions Trophy in two years, um, and and those guys I mentioned, Mamudullah, uh, Shaggy Balasan, Mushfakir. I don't expect them to be there, so um, it's time for them to um, reset. I think, yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of turnover prior to the next World Cup, actually. There's a hell of a lot of blokes in that kind of 37 to 42 age range. So I think there will be a lot of different faces and a lot of different captains even. I know that uh, Baba has stood down for uh, Pakistan, for example, Baba Azam. I think, is England next? Unless I'm missing someone, if we're going alphabetically. They also had a really horrible tournament. 
it's just crazy to think going from defending champions to looking like they weren't going to win a game at one stage. I mean, my goodness. Yeah, I'd be interested to get your thoughts being the arch nemesis, right? It's really disappointing the way they they uh, played in the tournament, right? I think Ben Stokes was maybe a bit selfish. I think he hurt their preparation coming in at the last minute and probably might have... Uh, I think there's a bit of rumours that there's maybe a couple of different factions in the, in the team and so maybe a few people didn't see eye to eye. Butler has been kind of copped a bit of criticism as well. Maybe... He's played his last one day. I don't know how you feel about that. But then the other thing, and it's really the elephant in the cricket room as far as England is concerned, is this fucking tournament, the 100. So yet another format. They, I, I don't know, I feel like they probably rested on their laurels with the one dayers and took their eye off the ball. Maybe they thought job's done after winning the last one. But wow. Yeah, look, I think the, the thing with England is they focus on one format. And when they do the other formats, uh, you know, pay the price, right? They, they were really focused on the, Owen Morgan on the white ball side of things that obviously boiled over to the T20 World Cup, which they won not so long ago, right? But over the last year, the focus has been on test cricket with Bazball, with Brendan McCollum, right? And as a result, the test team is doing well and the white ball team has suffered, right? Uh, you know, Jason Roy, who's been a big part of this team over the last four years, was dropped at the final hour. Uh, can't put any fault on Dawood Milan. He, he did play beautifully. He's the one guy who actually did st- stand up for the England team during this uh, tournament, but um, look, Joss Butler's not done yet. He had a bad tournament. He's only thirty-two. I honestly believe he can. He's the one to take this team forward for the next, you know, four years. At thirty-six, he'll still be able to contribute. He's had one bad tournament, but his his record in white ball cricket stands up. But then you look at Johnny Besto, nearly thirty-four. Darwin Milan, as I mentioned, nearly thirty-six. Joe Root, will he still be around at at thirty-six, thirty-seven at the next? You know, World Cup. Mo and Ali won't be there. You know, you mentioned Ben Stokes. He won't be there. Chris Works. He won't be there. Adil Rashid. He won't be there. I can't see Mark Wood playing in the next World Cup at 37 either. So you're going to have a huge turnover over the next four years. And I think getting all the coach, uh, getting all the teams under the one coach with the same principles. Um, I, I, I love Matthew Maud. He's done a lot of great work in, in coaching circles in, in the women's game and the men's game. Uh, but I think that um, for England cricket to move forward, um, they would be well advised to let Brendan McCollum take control of all the teams, the white ball team and, and the red ball team. I thought Butler was a little bit older than that. Based on what you described, yeah, you, you might see him captaining that side just for a bit of stability, given all the other blokes that will be leaving, hey? Yeah, definitely. And and he's he's been a great player, right? He, he, yes, he's had one bad tournament, but he was just there hitting the winning runs in the T20 World Cup final not so long ago, right? And his, his record... Um, look, I mean, I don't know if he'll be captain in four years, but I definitely think um, they've got a West Indies tour coming up in a few weeks. I think um, he's going to be captaining that that team. Um, and they've got that Champions Trophy in two years. And maybe they can, you know, a, a, a blood a youngster, you know, a, a Harry Brook or a, you know, I don't know. There's not really that many um, <laughs> people lining up to take over that captaincy role. So they're, they're going to have to spend the next two years to identify who that person may be to lead them at the next World Cup if it's not just Joss Butler. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen Harry Brook play more. And I think, funnily enough, you spoke about the Champions Trophy. I think that's partly why maybe he didn't. They wanted to win those last couple of games in order to qualify for the Champions Trophy. I think it would have been quite embarrassing for them had they not. So, yeah, that's an interesting one. But, yeah, Harry Brook is definitely one of the pinnacles of the future, isn't he, for that English team? Who we got next? We got the Netherlands. Ah, yes, the Dutch. Yeah, well, so they were impressive, weren't they? Obviously, Van der Mer, we've talked about the oldies. He won't uh, be back next time, most likely, but he was magnificent. But yeah, they bowled well. They had that amazing 
uh, upset over South Africa, didn't they? So a really successful tournament for them. Yeah, look, and anyone who watched the qualifying tournament in Zimbabwe won't be surprised by the way the Netherlands played. Um, I guess this tournament was set up so that the Netherlands and the Afghanistans of the world wouldn't qualify. They wanted to have it as a 10-team tournament with the uh, full members. So West Indies and Zimbabwe technically would have been the ones that were playing ahead of Netherlands and Afghanistan. But the beauty of this um, World Cricket League is um, it, it allowed these guys to earn the right to be here. And Netherlands spoiled the party for the, for those those teams I mentioned. But they're well captained under Scott Edwards. They've got uh, a lot of professionals now, whereas previously they were amateurs. A lot of these guys are now playing their trade in county cricket. And they've got professional contracts from the Netherlands board themselves, some of them. So, I, I mean... Things are getting better. There's just been a TV deal announced that all the Netherlands cricket games are going to be shown live in in, in Netherlands now. The game is growing um, slowly but surely in that part of the world. And, uh, um, you know, seeing them in their Dutch orange, playing with so much charisma and um, uh, just being happy to be there um, it was awesome, man. Really awesome. And one of their blokes, I can't remember his name, was looking pretty sharp in the field too. So, yeah, great great for the game. And as you say, with the T20s being co-hosted in the USA soon, the game it really is getting more global. So, yeah, really great. New Zealand, funny tournament for them. How, how do you So place? why don't you speak to me a little? I think the resounding thing for me was that they just didn't, unfortunately, I guess, pace their tournament. It just kind of worked out the way it was. They started pretty well, but then... By the end. And look, they were gallant in defeat in the semi-final. But yeah, a little bit up and down. And I guess, unfortunately, they had that Kane Williamson injury, though he came back. I I think they could be... I mean, making the semi is nothing to sneeze at. I think they'll be pretty happy, but they'll probably be wishing they made that 2-3 semi and really given a a berth at the final a red hot shot. I think the obviously he didn't play spectacularly well in the semi, but Ratchan Ravindra was probably the uh, shining light of the tournament along with Daryl Mitchell. Definitely both those guys you just mentioned. And, uh, you know, what better place to do it in the shop window of all the IPL scouts? I think both those guys uh, will, I mean, Ravindra especially is going to um, go for a lot in the auction in a few weeks' time. So he's uh, scored himself a payday, I'm sure. But as you mentioned, I think New Zealand also suffered a lot of injuries throughout that tournament. Um, you know, early on, Tim Saudi was injured and Matt Henry took his place. Matt Henry was was their best bowler throughout the tournament. And then he got injured throughout the business end. Lockie Ferguson was injured, as you mentioned. Kane Williamson was injured. So there's guys coming in and out of the side at different times. It uh, messes with the continuity of the team. But as you said, New Zealand, to make the semifinals is a huge effort. I mean, they made the semifinal of pretty much last five, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the last five global tournaments, they made the semifinal. For a country of, what, four or five million, they just really make the most of of, of the resources that they have. Um, I just want to see them win one of these big tournaments. And really, they should have won in 2019 if it wasn't for that unfortunate incident where uh, the ball hit Stokes' bat and went for four. But uh, you really got to feel for them because they're punching so hard, making it to these knockout stages of these tournaments and just not being able to put the icing on the cake. So, yeah, hope to see them step up and, and, and get a victory. I know they've been world test champions, but in the white ball formats, I'd like to see them um, get their get their hands on some silverware. Inaugural world test champions, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, you're right. That's a really good... Correct a good piece of silverware for them. But yeah, they do. They punch above their weight. They're an amazing sporting nation, given their population, as you say. Although we think we are here in Australia, but they're phenomenal. We're five times the size of them approximately population-wise. So 
yeah, they, they really can hold their heads high. And I don't know, you just feel like luck doesn't go their way, does it? I mean, not only the the bat incident, as you mentioned, where it went away to the boundary, but also the boundary count back. And, geez, you need a bit of luck too, don't you? Uh, for a while there, yeah. it was looking like the Australia-South Africa match and Reserve Day were both going to be washed out. And, geez, history could be very, very different because South Africa would have gone through by virtue of the fact that they finished above us on the table, which is fair enough. They beat us in their head-to-heads as well. So, yeah, you need a little bit of luck to go your way too. For sure. Look, before we move on, Nate, I just want to ask you something, right? In a big tournament like this, okay, you play the whole tournament to qualify first, right? The only advantage you have for coming first or second is if the game is washed out, you automatically go through. But you've worked so hard to get to that spot. Sure, India's playing at home, so they've got the home home field advantage by coming first. They would have had it if they come first or fourth anyway. But there's no real advantage, right? In in the in the IPL. You have a scenario where one plays two and the winner goes through to the final and then three plays four and then there's a second chance for, for the loser of the one versus two game to to make a qualify for the final. Do you not think that in this uh, in a scenario like a, a 10-team World Cup when you've worked so hard to earn that ranking of one or two, you should be afforded a little bit more of an advantage than you currently are under the cu- uh, current format and the rules? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I, and I guess the only other advantage is potentially your opponent. So you can kind of, and Australia in the past has taken their foot off the pedal intentionally to get a more favourable semi-matchup, for example, and and they're not the only team. Several teams have and will do it in the future too. I I kind of I like the 1v4, 2v3 and just move on. I'm not a massive fan of extra games and, and those who listen to us will know I'm not a massive fan of play-ins, for example. I know it's not quite the same thing. I, I, yeah, it's an interesting one because, yeah, you should receive reward for finishing top. I guess when you win every match but the final, <laughs> you would have a bit of a sour taste. But, yeah, it's an interesting one. I'll have to see what Stewie says about that too. Yeah. Look, I agree with you, right? In uh, the BBL and the IPL, you can go down that plan, do, do that do, do that format. In a World Cup, it should stay as it is. But I just thought I'd open up that because that discussion has come up between me and some of my uh, other cricket-loving fraternity uh, as to what what, the, what their thoughts are on, on on a playoff type of scenario in a World Cup. So, no, it's just good to get your views on that. I'm sure there's plenty of people that agree with that too. I don't kind of hate it. But, yeah, no, it's definitely an interesting one. If anyone uh, wants to share their views, we're, we're definitely interested to hear them. All right, so let's move on to Pakistan then, right? And I know you mentioned earlier, Nathan, that uh, Babar stepped down as captain. Uh, it looks like in all formats, Shah Massoud is going to be taking over the test captaincy and uh, uh, Fridish uh, is going to be taking over the T20 captaincy. A one-day captain is yet to be named. They had their moments during this tournament. I think a big turning point was that game against Australia where uh, Australia were, you know, they'd lost 2-1-1 and one, one, and uh, put on a, a really good score against Pakistan and Abdullah Shafiq and, and Imam Mulak had got off to a really good start. Uh, Stoinis came on to two big wickets uh, and really turned the game in 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 Australia's favour. I think that was a game that they really needed to win. And from then onwards, it was just inconsistent, losing to Afghanistan um, and just playing just below uh, a level that their fans would have expected them to do. But Baba could have done a lot more. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of internal issues going on there in Pakistan. Mohammad Afis has been uh, appointed as the new... Um, Chief Administrator of Pakistan Cricket, and I think they'll uh, look to uh, build towards the ne- next World Cup over the next four years. But they should be pretty disappointed about the way they they turned up in this tournament in, in conditions that should have been favourable to them. 
And that was, was that because Inzi, Inzi Mamul Huck, obviously former great player, he he was in a bit of hot water from memory. Is that why that happened? No, I just think the administration are, are really unhappy with Baba's captaincy and the way he's gone about things because he's not a natural leader, fronting up to press conferences. And uh, I mean, I'm not being rude or anything, but he doesn't speak great English. Part of being a captain is not just what you do on the field. It's turning up to these media commitments, being able to be eloquent and speak well, right? That's why the Wazi Makrams, the Imran Khans, Shan Masood, um, educated in England, very, very well-spoken, is going to be the captain now. Um, it's a combination of things. And Baba tactically isn't the greatest captain. So I think um, a shake-up needed to happen. Um, but, you know, in, in a lot of these countries, there's a lot of interference by um, politicians, things like that. I think we'll get into Sri Lanka in a minute. Um, yeah, yes. Ch- change needed to be made, I think. So, yeah. I think finishing four and five, albeit just outside the semis in fifth place, on subcontinental turning wickets, which are favourable conditions, I think they would definitely see that as a disappointment and they will really rue the fact they didn't make the semis. And I talked about that young taxi driver. He was very disappointed and thought they really underperformed. So I I think your assessment's correct there. Yeah, and look, you just win a game against Afghanistan, a few other close games they should have won, and they're in that fourth spot, right? And I think I think the the word is inconsistency. You mentioned it. I think that is unfortunately one of the things that tends to plague some of those teams, like Pakistan uh, and the Windies, for example, or even Bangladesh. Some of these teams in world cricket are just at times can look just amazing, and then at other times it's almost Jekyll and Hyde, isn't it? So yeah, inconsistency really is a problem, and and it really can separate the good teams from the pretenders. Well said. Predictably unpredictable is how we like to <laughs> describe Pakistan cricket. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, you've talked about Sri Lanka a little bit there. They've got some woes off the field, to say the least. They've been stripped of the under-19 hosting, if I'm not mistaken. They had a very disappointing tournament. And really, since a lot of those greats uh, retired, like the Morales and the De Silvers and, and all those sort of guys, they've they've really been a shadow of their former selves, haven't they, Sri Lanka? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Dasun Shanaka didn't even deserve a place in the in the squad. He can barely score a run in the last six months. Um, and they left out someone like Angela Matthews and called him up later. You'd think in a team like this, full of uh, inexperienced, um, inex- inexperienced, you'd want to have someone like Angela Matthews there, you know. Hasaranga got injured just before the tournament, who was a big part in their wide ball teams and is just a fantastic bowler. So that didn't really help them at all. Uh, another one of those teams that needs to reset and build from the ground up and build and for years because um, they need to identify a new leader um, and some talent as well. And and as you mentioned, the government getting involved in all the affairs of the Sri Lankan Cricket Board has mean they've been suspended from world cricket indefinitely. So a lot of problems going on with the administration there. And unless you can get that right, it's impossible to build and go forward um, as an organization, as a team. So they've got to get their house in order. I think that's very important. They do that first and foremost. Let's talk about South Africa. No, I think we covered a lot about South Africa, Nate, um, when we spoke about the semifinal. I think they should be really proud of what they achieved in this tournament. I didn't expect them to be in the top four. But then, you know, they've found a lot of guys that can take this team forward. I mean, Dave Miller, 34, I think he might be able to hold on for the till the next World Cup. He only plays one format, but Heinrich Klaassen, just the, the find of the tournament. Temple Bavuma, although he didn't score a run, has led the team well. They've got Reza Hendricks waiting in the wings, Aidan Markram. Uh, Rassi van der Dusen at 34 may or may not survive, but... Uh, till the next World Cup, but they've got a lot of talent. Marco Jansen, the great all-rounder, Kutsia, the, the fast bowler. You know, they, they've still got Ingidi and Rabada who've got years left in them. So I think the future is bright there for South African cricket. 
yeah, I'm I'm excited to see um how they perform over the uh, over the coming coming years. One person that they, they will miss is Quinton de Kock, who very surprisingly retired in the pinnacle of of his form at only age 30. So that's a that's going to be a big loss for them. Yeah, that is an interesting one. He feels like he's been around forever. I'm surprised to hear that he's only 30. But yeah, they look. I'll be honest. They probably weren't on my radar enough, and I probably didn't give them enough credit. And there's a few guys that I maybe don't know as much about as I should. Uh, uh, to be honest, Klassen and and Kutsi included. But I guess it was that that England game that really sticks in my mind. That was the night of my 40th, and and the kind of was on in the background at the pub. And Stewie and I and a number of our other mates were just marveling at that knock from Heinrich Klassen. But Marco Janssen had a 75 in that one too. So yeah, that was a, a really interesting game where they put on about 400 from memory. So yeah, every reason to believe that they'll be there or thereabouts for a while. Yep, totally agree. And they should be very proud, as I said. Absolutely. Um, Seven to, and two. Gee. To get to the semifinals and only just fall short. Yeah. So Woody, obviously that only leaves two teams, India and Australia, who were the finalists. I might kind of bundle that discussion into a wider discussion, I guess, about the quality of the tournament and the aftermath. So I, I really enjoyed it. I am a bit more of a cricket purist, not as much as you. Obviously, I don't have nearly the knowledge you have, but I do love my one-day cricket. I certainly love it more than T20 cricket. You've already mentioned the fact that the semi-final berths were kind of live right nearly to the end, where Afghanistan still had a red-hot chance right near the end. So in that sense, it was a really good and successful tournament. But I also see a note here from Stewie, and I quote, I read a stat that said 22 of the 48 games, or 45.83%, were considered big wins. That is 100-plus runs or 4-plus wickets with 60-plus balls remaining, which is tied for the 2015 World Cup for second most, behind only the 8 out of 15 big wins in 1975, a World Cup that included East Africa and when the West Indies were an absolute powerhouse. So I'd be really interested to know your, I guess, assessment on the quality of the tournament and, yeah, I guess the feeling about how successful it was as a tournament as a whole. Look, you don't have to have nail-biting games for the tournament to be a success. I see what Stewie's saying with those stats. There were a few one-sided games. But if you look back on the tournament as a whole, it was a great advertisement for the the one-day format of the game. And as you mentioned, one-day cricket allows uh, a batsman to build his innings over a period of time. A bowler gets a 10-over spell, so he has to test out various different skills. At the start, he'll need to hit a good test match length, look to get the batsman out. And then towards the death, you have the um, you know the slog over, so to speak, and you've got to um, master your Yorkers and your slower balls. You've also got the first 10-overs being extremely important in the power play, in, especially in, a, in Asian conditions where... The bowlers have to try and limit the damage at the same point, trying to attack to get early wickets. I think a big part of what Australia did in that semi-final and final was with their quicks look to really attack and get wickets in those first 10 overs, right? And that paid dividends. So uh, I don't think that um, we need to dwell too much on the one-sided games. Obviously, sometimes the toss makes a difference in, in Indian conditions. You mentioned due factor. You mentioned the spinners coming into play. I think we mentioned the spinners coming to play in the second innings in 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 certain uh, on certain pitches. It, it's just the way it goes sometimes. But I think in in all the tournament it was a resounding success. Uh, one day cricket is is here to stay, and uh, the the fifty over World Cup still remains the the pinnacle of tournaments to be won on the cricket calendar. All right, Woody, I'm going to get a little bit uncomfortable here if you'll let me. So. 
here's some stats and and some really interesting ratings. I will. So here's here's the top four teams as far as win loss ratio in men's ODI World Cup from 2015 onwards. So the last three, effectively. South Africa, 27 matches, 15 and 11. New Zealand, 29 matches, 19, 9 and 1. Famous one there. Australia, 29 matches, 23 and 6. India, 28 matches, 24 and 4. 2015, 7 and 1. 2019, 7 and 2. 2023, 10 and 1. Now, Shui and I are very interested in the concept of choking in sport, and we've done a number of episodes on that, 72, 75, 102, 106, 114. Got to take that opportunity to advertise. Go back and check them out. They're worth a listen, and we'll do more in the future too. The question I have to ask, Woody, and I know it's an uncomfortable one, did India choke the tournament? You'd have to say yes uh, in that final, right? They played so well, and when when it counted most in the final, they, they choked, yes. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you on that. I'm not saying that that's a it's not a South African um, situation where it's becoming a, a trend. Okay, I don't want to look back on 2015 and 19, but I definitely think in your home conditions, okay, hundred thousand adoring fans, you've won every game of the tournament so far. You've actually smashed Australia in the first game of the tournament. Sure, Australia were a different team come the final compared to the first game of the tournament, but at the same point you'd expect India to t- take home that victory. And I said that all the different factors w- with, with regards to that final, you know, the pressure on them, but it got to them. And I, I think that um, if they look back on that and they could have that day again, things would have gone differently. Uh, you always give me so many great comments to respond to, and I don't know where to start. How much of Australia's dominance in world cricket in the last 30-odd years comes down to the simple fact of just being more poised under pressure and stepping up in the big moments. Because like I guess before when I was talking about inconsistency, it seems like Australia's poise is almost a difference in so many ways. Yeah, definitely. And it's it, you got that rich history of the World Cup. We talked about the, uh, the World Cup being the pinnacle. It's got such rich history dating back to 1975, as, as we've spoken about. And Australia have done this so many times. You know, this is the sixth World Cup they've won, right? You look, what, 87 99, 2003, 2007, 15, and here, right? Is that six? Is my maths correct there? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it is, it is six. And the, and you've got to say, probably the sweetest of them all because of the fact that it was away in India and the horrible start that we had. Definitely, right? And like these guys have grown up watching their heroes, their idols, many who have had uh, impacts and roles in their, in, in their lives step up and win World Cup finals. And it's ingrained in the Australian's psyche that when the bright lights are on and it's time for them to step up, this is their chance to make themselves accounted, right? And when you've got that that tradition and that history to fall back on, look back on, speak to other greats of the games that have been there before, you know, many of them, as I said, they're in part of the coaching staff, selectors, or they've been mentors to these guys. I also mentioned that these guys, five of this team had been there in a final before, right? And and had done it before in a, in a big game. A lot of these guys were part of the T20 World Cup final a few years ago that won. So they've been in these scenarios before. They know how to deal with pressure situations. Uh, but having said all of that, to be able to do that in Indian conditions against what I feel is the strongest ever Indian 50 oversight in the history of our, in Indian cricket history, it has to rank up there as one of the greatest ever sporting achievements that Australia has been a part of, not just in cricket. And, and yeah, my hat hat must go off 
as I said, to the way Pat Cummins marshaled his troops throughout this tournament, right? They were struggling, right? Uh, let's go back to that game in Sri Lanka when they'd lost their first two games and, uh, you know, uh, the Sri Lankan openers had a 100-plus partnership, right? Pat Cummins came on and bowled a beautiful spell there and really turned that game on its head, okay? And along with Adam Zampa finding some form, their fielding becoming a lot better um, from that third game onwards, these were the catalysts for them to turn this tournament around. And you won't say Pat Cummins has always been given the most kudos as a, as a captain, right? Um, you know, he very people say he's very uh, robotic in his bowling changes and things like that. But he's a terrific leader of men. And we saw that in this World Cup. He improved tactically as, as the tournament went on as well. So. Ian Higgins from The Great Cricketer, this, his tweet sums it up really. The World Cup winners picked a guy with a broken hand that could play only half the games, lost their second spinner just before the tournament, changed their keeper mid-tournament, smashed in the first two games, Sri Lanka none for 125 in game three, as you alluded to, seven for 91 versus Afghanistan, and won the final by six wickets. It's just crazy, and it really is just the most famous victory in Australia's World Cup history. I don't think there's any other way to to put it. You mentioned South Africa before, maybe not choking, but I actually, I actually kind of feel like they maybe still did show a bit of chokiness because they dropped like four catches in that semi. And I know, I know they weren't defending a large total, and it was a real arm wrestle, and it was really one of those games for the purists in some ways. It was very slow going at the end. But obviously, in a semi, you just got to get over the line. You just got to win. Who cares if you you win ugly? But yeah, like I say, I actually feel like, even though it was a really funny game, they maybe did have a bit of chokiness in that semi with with their fielding. Look, that's a fair call. But you know, when when you look back at the previous South African teams that choked, they were very very strong sides. You know, you even mentioned this this South African team almost flew under the radar. You know, I had uh, New Zealand. Uh, Pakistan, India, and Australia to be the semi-finalists before it started, right? I didn't even think South Africa would make that. Uh, the best gone by, they've had these great teams that are expected to go on and lost at, at the final hurdle. So maybe the, the reason I'm not saying that they choked so much is because I feel for them to get that far and almost win that semi-final was a good achievement. But as you said, dropping those catches at vital times, probably not putting enough runs on the board as well in that semi-final could be construed as a choke, yes. Do you reckon the Afghanis choked against Australia when Maxwell had that knock? Obviously, we've already talked about the fact that they were seven for 91 at one stage. It, it really was a tournament of collapses, and I've mentioned it nearly every time we've recorded throughout the tournament, but it really did feel like a tournament of collapses and chokes at times. Definitely, but you know, these Afghani guys, they have not been in those situations before. You know, it's very new to them to be in a situation where they're about to beat Australia, okay? They're potentially looking at a qualification for a semi-final in the biggest tournament on the cricket calendar, Right. It's sometimes tough when when you're so close and you don't know how to close out games properly, right? They, I, I mentioned these Australians have been there before. They've been in those situations. Well, it's the opposite for the Afghani guys. They have not been so close to, to doing something special before. And they just didn't care. You know, Maxwell had that LBW decision that was uh, line ball. That dropped catch off Majib, right? And then he said, "Look, this is I got the rubber the green today. I'm gonna I'm gonna make this make them pay." So, I think just lack of experience was what cost them in that scenario, Nathan. I agree with you 100. percent I think winning is a habit, and it's it's really hard to take that next step from being super competitive to winning. 
I do think they choked. I think, so Stewie and I like to think of, I guess there's like a continuum or a spectrum of chokes. I think it's on the very, very low end. In fact, it's probably a one out of 10. But because of that drop catch, which was an absolute sitter, and I really do feel like they could have bowled in a way that would have been more difficult for Maxwell. He wasn't pulling the ball. He was playing well behind square and he was playing creatively behind the wicket and that sort of thing, whereas he was struggling with the pull shot, I think. So I would have liked to have seen them bowl a bit of short stuff, kind of tempting him to pull. So, yeah, I do think they choked a little bit, but I, I think it's a, on a very, on the lowest lowest of the low side of choking. Uh, Pakistan really fell apart against India, losing eight for less than 40 at one stage. I don't know if you could think of any others, but that was an interesting note of the tournament as well, I thought. Yeah, I was at the Pakistan-Afghanistan game, actually, right? And uh, I think that is a game that Pakistan really needed to win, right? They put a semi-decent score on the board, um, and just were toothless with the ball, you know, the whole whole Afghanistan innings. And they chased down the score with relative ease. Um, and I think that's one game that stands out for me that Pakistan should have really won. And that really changed the 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 narrative of their tournament. After taking that loss to Afghanistan, they were never able to bounce back from it. So that that one game does stand out for me. And, and a great win for Afghanistan, right? To beat, beat Pakistan is, is big for them as well, so... A lot of these guys have spent their formative years in Pakistan, right? A lot of these Afghanis. So that was really special. And actually, very special day for me to be. But Nathan, you're not allowed to have alcohol in any of the grounds in India, except Bangalore, I think it is. So I'm sitting in 40-degree heat, not, not, not able to have a beer. <laughs> um, and security is extremely tight. And that day, I was sitting with a bunch of guys who had come from Pondicherry, right? Um, a French colony not far from Chennai. And they'd, they'd snuck in all this rum. I'm like, how did these guys get it in past security? Must have must have thrown a few dollars at the, at the, <laughs> at the security guards to, to let them get the booze in. But um, that, was a, that was a fun day. Do you have any other thoughts on Australia before, I guess, we, we look at the aftermath a little bit more? I've got a few quotes I'd like you to reflect on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Australia is in a pretty good place. We mentioned earlier the nucleus is there for the next four years. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, David Warner won't be around. Steve Smith, I doubt he'll be around. You know, your Stoinuses of the world probably would really. Hazelwood, touch and go. Stark, definitely not. But there's guys waiting in the wings that can come in and, and fill that void. I think by the next World Cup, Travis Head may actually be the captain of the side. And you've got a like-for-like like replacement for Stephen Smith in 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 Manus. Um, I'm still not convinced about Josh Inglis. I know you're a big fan. You know you you with your Western Australian hat on. No, no, uh, no, 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 well no, 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 no. I got to reframe the narrative. <laughs> I'm reframing the narrative. It's it's got nothing to do with the fact he's West Aussie. I just thought because he's more creative in the short form. I'm all for Kerry in the tests. I think that we talked about a little bit the Johnny Bairstow run out that was legit. Uh, unfortunately, I think there's been some weird aftermath from that for, for Kerry. And and so I think the change was gutsy. But I think once Inglis did get the change, he did enough to hold on to his spot. I thought they were just as good with the gloves as each other. And I think that Inglis, I, I can't see Kerry doing much better with the bat than what Inglis did. He didn't set the world ablaze, but he did enough as a medium to lower order batsman. So, yeah, look, I, I can give or take Inglis if I'm honest. I mean, he is a West Aussie and he had a wonderful knock in the T20s, which, by the way, why the fuck are we playing T20s yes, yes. four days? Like, for goodness sake, let the engraving settle on the truth. BCCI, BCCI. Oh, it's ridiculous. BCCI, man, wanting to make extra money. The Australians are already in town. Let's get five 2020s there. The one thing is Australia's only got about four or five 2020s after this 
before the World Cup next year in June. So this tournament actually gives them a chance to try out some of their bench strength to try and um, uh, identify who some of those players could be that will represent Australia at the World Cup next year. So uh, sure, it's a silly five-match series to have, but it has more significance to it than the, than the dumb three-match one-day series they played against England after the T20 World Cup uh, previously, right? So there's, there's still <laughs> something to get out of these five games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the one thing I do like about this is it does give guys who are maybe on the outers and, and don't get a lot of games, like Sean Abbott had a game in the World Cup, but he didn't really play much. And Tim David, Jason Berendorf, it does give a lot of those guys an opportunity to put on the green and gold when they've had really good domestic careers. So I guess that is the silver lining of that one. You guys are pretty much fielding a C team, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the guys are being rested there, but, you know, the, the guys that have come through, they, they represented India at the Asian Games recently, all had great IPL, so the IPL careers, so the likes of Jaiswal and Rutharaj Gaikwad, Surya Kumar Yadav being able to captain the side. It's really giving an opportunity, but both teams to giving some opportunities to some guys who might not necessarily get that opportunity if the full teams were there. So there is some positives to take out of this series for both India and Australia, the, the 2020 series currently ongoing. So let's look at the aftermath before we wrap with the team of the tournament. So unfortunately, according to the Hindustan Times or Hindustan Times, a 32-year-old software engineer actually died of a heart attack in Turapati. Hindustani. Hindustani. Yeah, died of a heart attack after the loss. And according to the World is One News, a 23-year-old from West Bengal actually committed suicide after the match, which is really, really sad and just obviously not something that that we want to see. I want to read you a few quotes here and really get your thoughts. Now, some of them are a bit lengthy, so uh, forgive me for talking for a little while. That's okay. This first one, Sanjay Mandraker, you might have seen or or heard this already. I'll I'll skip through a few bits and, I guess, piece four different bits together. I quote, The pitch was tacky, a bit rough on top and likely to turn from ball one. So Australia wasn't really taking a huge risk by going against the cliche of putting runs on the board in the big game. They knew their paces would get some lateral movement in the afternoon. Plus, the sandpaper-like top meant that the reverse swing would come into play with Mitchell Stark as one of the best exponents of it in the world in their side. Also, the slower balls were going to be a great option to go if nothing else worked. He went on, If Jew comes in later, batting was bound to get easier. The ball wasn't going to turn as much. Plus, the slower ball as a lifesaver for the seamer when nothing works was not going to be an option. He goes on again. It was actually a win-win scenario for the team bowling first. After that, it was all about execution. And then finally, I fast forward. To put it simply, the 10 out of 10 India was beaten by the conditions first. What do you make of all that? Look, I mean, some of what he said has some credence, right? But at the same point, you've got to give credit where credit is due. You know, you've got to be able to execute those skills, take advantage of that reverse swing that happened, you know, and and, and pick up, picked up those vital wickets in his, in, in his latest spell, you know? So I think um, a, a bit of sour grapes because I think India could have still won despite losing the toss. Rohit Sharma said at the toss himself, he would have batted anyway. And I do honestly feel that he would have. So I don't think that that, final comment that final phrase that you just mentioned about um the conditions and things like that is a is an apt statement some points he does make though in terms of australia's seamers getting lateral movement the slow ball sticking in the wicket the reverse swing etc yeah i guess the two things that stand out there to me are the reference to sandpaper like yeah well done definite sour grapes there stick the boot in but also like just 
After that, it was all about execution. Like, it's just an afterthought. Oh, you've just got to execute. Well, you've got to execute for 600 balls. You've got a bowl. You've got a field. You've got a bat. We were absolutely outstanding in the field. Pat Cummins was one of the... Okay, he didn't take heaps of wickets, but it was one of the great bowling spells of of World Cup history, I think is fair to say. So, I don't know. I felt like he's kind of just talking about execution as an afterthought when execution is actually like 99% of it all. I'll tell you something, Nate. I was in India with all my family watching the games on TV. And every time Sanjay Manjareka came on the microphone, they were like, get this idiot off. We do not want to hear him speak. He's an absolute idiot. The, even Indians despise Sanjay Manjareka, right? So <laughs> he needs to, you know, check himself a little bit and uh, um, give credit where credit's due, right? Um, he's sounding like a bit of an Indian barracker with a microphone as opposed to an unbiased commentator. I'm glad you brought that up. There was far too much barracking going on. I thought Hados was shocking during the final. I don't know. You might not have had the sound on as much because you were with your family and stuff. But Hados, Hados nearly fucking jinxed it for us. Hey, he got way too big for his boots, first in our bowling innings and then in our batting innings. I wasn't a big fan of that at all. Yeah, look, I didn't hear much of it. We were drinking scotch and talking between ourselves, to be honest. But I'm actually a big fan of Matthew Hayden as a commentator in general. But yes, I can't comment on the final because... Uh, as as you said, um, I wasn't. I didn't have the commentary on for much no. of the much of the game. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, I just yeah maybe the maybe the moment got the better of him, and obviously he's been in World Cup winning teams and and in some very successful teams over the years. But it was interesting, Dave Tickner's response to the Sanjay incredible areas from cricket's most rattled man. Also, still insisting the toss was a huge factor and game changer, despite Rohit saying he would have batted first anyway, and calls an Australian team that won eight matches in a row an unconvincing entrant into the final. There were similar sour grapes from Muhammad Kaif. I, I don't know if you saw that one, but he said, Congratulations to Australia, but I'm not ready to accept that the best team won the World Cup. This Indian team has been the best side. They are the best team on paper. They would win so many times playing against the same Australian team, even though they lost today. It was one of those bad days. This happens sometimes. Reminds me of that great uh, Brian Clough quote. We had a good team on paper. Unfortunately, the game was played on grass. Look, that really surprises me because Mohamed Kaif is a very decent man, very measured in his thoughts usually. Great friend of Ricky Ponting, actually an assistant coach to him at the Delhi uh, Capitals. Um, and he's often very measured and... Uh, and uh, you know, fair in his comments. So that actually very surprised. Uh, it's very surprising that those words came from his mouth. And look, it's not. But it just shows you, Nathan. It just shows you how much this meant. Yes, to the exactly. people of India, and exactly. how much, how much it hurt this loss, right? So yeah, it must have just about been a state of mourning for the for the nation. And and like to, as I said before, to think that people were committing suicide afterwards is just devastating. And. Really sad, and obviously, that's, as we always say, if anyone's experiencing dark thoughts, please speak to people because we love sport, and it is a really important yeah. part of our lives as sport blokes, and and yourself and and Robbie as well. But crikey, like yeah, but as you say, yeah, it's so it's so important to the identity. really really tough to hear that. I've just got one more quote, Woody Ashish Magotra, a little bit long as well, but uh, I quote: "No match, let alone a big final, should be decided on the spin of a coin." The luck factor exists in every sport, but both teams usually play on an even field. Australia were the better team on the day, no doubt, but whoever was responsible for the pitch loaded the dice and made it a lottery, one in which India could not get the right numbers. Trying to get a certain kind of pitch also conveys the fear of losing, not a message to send out before a big final. If India want to be the best in the world, the focus on the nature of the pitch must stop. Trying to manipulate the conditions reveals a weakness, not a strength. 
On Sunday, at a crucial juncture, it played a part in stopping a team that had pretty much looked unstoppable throughout most of the tournament. Don't know what you think about that one. Look, he makes some valid points there, right? With the same token, you come to Australia, you expect bouncy pitches where the Australian bowlers, you know, with, with the with the Kookaburra ball, uh, you know, have an advantage. You go to England, you know, they, they have these little seeming wickets that... Uh, the Duke ball performs in. So there's nothing wrong with creating a pitch to uh, uh, suit the home conditions in, in your favor. That's that's the beauty of cricket, right? Um, but at the same point, um, you can just, the, the, something worked for them throughout the tournament, right? Whatever pitches the curators were creating for those first 10 games, they worked in India's favor, right? So maybe they did overthink it a little bit too much, um, try to make the pitch much more favorable and that whole, process backfired on them but they can't ha have sour grapes here after in their own home conditions with their own home curator curators and whatnot preparing the pitch accordingly and then losing the toss and blaming that you know it it, it is what it is man right they've just got to accept it and uh, once the toss is done and you have to bat or ball first you have to then stand up and perform to the best of your abilities and um, take all those things out of your mind and just try to perform on the day with the conditions that are placed in front of you well said, and I think given it's still less than a week since it happened and there's still a bit of shell shock for a lot of people, particularly Indian fans, I think you've been very level-headed and very you, you've approached this very well. So I thank you for your candour and your honesty and your insights into the whole tournament and India's performances because it, it is it is easy to have sour grapes and, and we all have it at times and, and Stu and I will joke about it like we're just as guilty as anyone. So... Yeah, it's it's a shame to to see some sour grapes in the aftermath, but you certainly have been really level-headed and and really good about it all. So I thank you so much again for joining us. Let's finish up with the team of the tournament, Woods. I'll, I'll run through all the names and then we can maybe reflect on it. I know you've come up with your own team too, so it'll be interesting to see how that differs. So the ICC team of the tournament was Quinton de Kock, wicketkeeper as well, 594 at 59.4. Rohit Sharma, 597 runs at 54.27. Virat Kohli, 765 runs yep. at 95.62, as I said. Incredible. Daryl Mitchell, 552 runs at 69. Kale Rahul, 542 at 75.33. Glenn Maxwell, 400 runs at 66.66. And six wickets at 55. Got to be said, though, one innings was half of those runs. Ravindra Jadeja. 120 yep. runs at 40, 16 wickets at 24.87. Jasprit Bumrah, 20 wickets at 18.65. Dilshan Madashankar, 21 at 25. Adam Zampa, 23 wickets at 22.39. And he joined Murali as spinners with 23 wickets in a World Cup. Pretty impressive list. Shahid Freedy had 21 in 2011. Brad Hogg had 21 in 2007. And Warney had 20 in 1999. Uh, but back to the list. Mohamed Shami, as you said, absolutely magnificent, superb tournament from him. 24 wickets at 10.7. And then they had the 12th man as Jared Kutsi, 20 wickets at 19.8. The differences between that one and the Wisden one, Wisden had Travis Head, 329 at 54.83 with a strike rate of 127 instead of Decock. Uh, I guess in that case, then Kale Rahul would have been the keeper in that team. And then Kutsi instead of Mandashankara, they had no 12th man on their list. So how, how did your list differ from that? I think it's pretty good for the most part. Yeah, pretty good. I think mine is very similar. So I had Rohit Sharma as captain, 597 runs at 54.27 and over. And alongside him, I had Quinton de Kock, 
Four hundreds, man, in the World Cup. Average of fifty nine point four, strike rate of one hundred and seven point oh two. I don't think Travis had played enough, although he was big in those games. I think if you look at the whole tournament, Decock and Sharma, um, Sharma obviously there for his captaincy. Then at number three, I had Virat Kohli. Four, I had Rachin Ravindra cheated a little bit. I know he batted at three or open, but I'm having him at four. Oh, I've that's got okay. Daryl Mitchell yeah, at five. That's fine. Got Daryl Mitchell at five, 552 runs at 69, had a 200s, 250s, had a brilliant tournament. Glenn Maxwell, not just for his batting, but the way he performed with the ball as well. He really did a good job. Maybe not taking heaps of wickets, but not having that second spinner. He really did do a holding job and, and was relied upon to to bowl a lot of um, important overs. So him at six, I've actually gone in at seven. No one's put him in here. I've put in Marco Janssen. Okay, he's got batting average of 31.4 with the bat. And he's also taken 17 wickets at 26 with the ball. And I think he got slept on a little bit because I thought he did a really good job with bat and ball. I've got him at seven. I've got Adam Zampa at, oh, well, I've got, um, so no Madashanka. No Cummins or Hazelwood. So my four quicks are Kutsia, Shami, Zampa, and Bumrah. I think you're right. I think Janssen it was definitely worth a look. And they finished seven and two and second on the table. So it was really interesting. A lot of people, and there were sour grapes on the Aussie side as far as the team of the tournament. But that to me reeked of people that didn't actually watch the fucking games or look at the, the scores. Because the Australian tournament, it built. So we started really slow. But also it wasn't, always the same guys in every game we actually spread the load quite well and so in one match Mitch Marsh is scoring 170 odd and then the next match he's doing nothing and Travis Head has a big knock and then he doesn't play half the games and so I think that people that think Australia should have had more players in the team of the tournament are kidding themselves I I think that's crazy I just wanted Rohit in there for his captaincy right I think they they had similar tournaments with the bat both Sharma and Warner but just for the captaincy side of things I'd have. I'd have one or his 12th man if I'm allowed to do that, right? So Yeah, I think that's fair. I think Rowett definitely, I would have had Rowett ahead of, of David Warner as well. He did have a decent tournament, but no, I think that's fair. And and shout out to Dilshan Madhushanka. I'm in an absolutely terrible team. Um, he, he's, he's new to international cricket and obviously 21 wickets at 25 is a, is a huge effort. But what really counts against him is those wickets did not lead to victories. They were often empty wickets at the end of the innings when they were trying to slog him around for a bit. He picked up five for 80 in one of the games, I remember, right? When he got he got the wickets at the very end when they were trying to slog him, things like that. So there's there's numbers, but then there's also, you know, a narrative behind how those numbers were, were achieved. I think um, Kutsia did really well and um, contributed to to wins for his team um, and ended up taking uh, 20 wickets at 19.8. So, yeah. I think you're absolutely right, mate. As anyone that listens to us long enough will know, I'm a massive eye test guy. You can't just look at the stats. Context is everything, and yeah, the, sometimes the stats might be a little bit less, but you might make a much bigger difference to your team, and you might help win more games. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Well, we've gone for ages. I still had more, but I'm not going to hold you up anymore on a Saturday. <laughs> You've been super generous with your time. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's regrettable Stewie couldn't join us as well, but no doubt the three of us will, will get together on here again. I guess uh, we'd love to know more about what you do with Throwback Hoops. Obviously, you're a massive cricket fan, but basketball is what you do in the podcast world. So, yeah, please uh, let our listeners know where they can find you and what to expect, I guess. Yeah, so Throwback Hoops can follow us on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Instagram at throwback.hoops. We're on X, formerly Twitter, as Throwbacks Hoops with an S. 
We have an email, throwbackhoopspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we come up with an episode every week. We've done a lot of collaborations with the likes of yourselves, the sport blokes, and had various different guests on the show. Yeah, so please follow the show. Um, very exciting season of uh, the NBL and the NBA, and uh, we showcase various different memorabilia like jerseys and hats and bobbleheads and open up packs of cards. So, yeah. I can attest and so can Stewie to both your and Robbie's jerseys and memorabilia and all the bells and whistles you guys have. It's just incredible. (laughs) Super, super impressive. I haven't had a chance to listen to your most recent episode with the basketball blokes, but you got them at a really good time during the fever break as people are thinking about their super coach teams. I listened to your most recent episode with Bob Turner last night. Really fascinating. He he was really generous with his time, wasn't he? Gave some really interesting insights. Talked about some of the older players from back in the day, like Leroy Loggins and Andrew Gaze and James Crawford and Mark Davis. But then obviously talked about Leon Trimmingham and Mario Donaldson and all of those great Kings players from back in the day. Dwayne McLean. So yeah, definitely encourage people to listen to that. That was that was must must have been great fun. I'm glad you enjoyed that. I thought you'd like that. Then um. Bob Turner, as you, if you listen to the show, is someone that um, I remember fondly from my childhood. So to have him on the podcast and actually get to meet him was incredible. And he's such a nice man. Has your dad listened yet, mate? I know he was a fan. I actually haven't asked him. That's a good point. I need to ask him, Nate, if he has. I hope he has. So we've got lunch tomorrow with, at my parents. So I'll ask him if he's listened to the show yet. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Mr. V. Final thoughts, mate. I guess any uh, let's we talked about a lot of cricket. Any final thoughts in the basketball you want to leave our our listeners with before I bid you adieu? I mean, your Perth Wildcats they've they've got their got their shit together, right? I really like what they've been doing, and uh, I think that uh, they're on an upward curve. So I think the Red Army's laying off John really a little bit, aren't they? <laughs> it's funny. I was talking to well, he's effectively my father-in-law. He isn't yet, but he will be very soon today. And basically saying that Perth fans just have no patience and. We're just shocking and we're so used to winning and we've been so successful for so long. We're like spoiled brats. And so when things go wrong for five minutes, we start pulling out the pitchforks. So yes, it is is good we've steadied the ship. How do you feel about your Kings? They've been a bit up and down. They have been, but you know, I think they're they're gonna be preparing for the postseason. They take a loss here and there in the regular season. It doesn't really bother them too much. They've been there before. I'm not a hundred percent convinced by Coach Mahmoud Abdul Fateya. The jury's out still. So I'm going to give him some more time before I pass judgment. But so far, there's a few things that have concerned me. But let's see how it plays out, man. Um, I I think we're seven and four, second on the ladder at the moment. So not alarm bells just yet. And in the NBA, are you still sticking with the Lakers for champions? We're about 15 games into the season now. Oh, man, man. (laughs) That looks really bad now, doesn't it? Right. That looks really bad now. I think they need to get their guys fit and healthy on the floor, right? I think that's been a, a, a big problem. J- Jared Vanderbilt is someone who I think that will, will help them. But still, yeah, I think I would uh, take that prediction back if I had, a, <laughs> if I had it back now. So. I'll stick with Denver myself. Thank you so much again, Woody. You've been super generous. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. And I look forward to talking to you offline as well as the next time we get in front of microphones again. So thanks for your time and looking forward to next time. The feeling's mutual. Always happy to chop it up with you, Nate. All right, if you've listened to us enough times over the years, you'll know what that music means. Final thoughts time. 
A massive thank you to Woody once again for joining me. It was a really brilliant chat. We could have easily gone for at least half an hour more, probably even longer. And Stewie and I were laughing about it afterwards that had Stewie been with us, it probably would have been over two hours. So maybe a blessing in disguise there. But looking forward to hear Stewie's thoughts on his reflection of the episode. Don't worry, basketball fans. There'll be a lot of basketball over the next, well, four plus months. Get our teeth stuck into that. Bit of Aussie cricket over the summer too. Until next time, I'm Nath. We are the Sport Blokes.